Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the RSA, welcome to the great room, those of you in here, uh, and for everyone online, welcome to you as well. I'm Andy Haldane, I'm the Chief Executive uh, here. It's a huge pleasure uh, to welcome uh, Ed, Ed Smith here uh, to the RSA. Uh, and the topic we're discussing is how to make better decisions, uh, which in this world we're living in of polycrises and permacrises, uh, it's hard to think of a more important topic, to be honest, Ed. And given the richness of your experience across a whole range of organisations and domains, I can think of um, few, if any, people better to talk about that than, uh, than Ed. Now, I imagine pretty much everyone knows who Ed is, but if there is anyone out there that doesn't, <laughs> let me give the very quick uh, resume. Uh, of course, he's a superstar cricketer uh, for Kent and Middlesex uh, and for England. Most recently, Ed, as you'll all probably know, uh, had a crucial role as chief selector for English cricket between 2018 and 2021, uh, uh, and not coincidentally, <laughs> over that period, England did rather well, Ed. I'm sure we'll get on uh, to that. That's really, really, really part of the Ed story. Uh, he is, as I'm sure you know, a prominent thinker and writer on everything from sport and leadership uh, to business and art and creativity and innovation, institutional design and decision-making, which is the topic today. And all of those things, Ed, make you the perfect guest for a place like this. Because that's the game we've been in, I think, for getting on for 270 years mm. here at the RSA. Ed's contributing writer for the New Statesman uh, and co-founder and director of the Institute for Sports Humanities. Having spoken at that institute, I can attest to the fantastic work that it does as the author of several brilliant books and joins us today to discuss, among other things, his latest one, Making Decisions, Putting the Human Back into the Machine. Uh, what we'll do today is I'll offer Ed a few throwdown questions <laughs> to get his eye in, and then it's over to you. Uh, either in the room or online to ping some questions uh, Ed's way and then we'll wrap up uh, within uh, the hour. As Ed says in his book, I'm going to quote now, there's nothing like conversations to explore ideas and pursue answers. So let's do just that. Please join me in welcoming the RSA, Ed Smith. Thank you, thank you. Great to see you, Andy. Thanks so much. Let's kick off, Ed. So um, I imagine there are a lot of cricket enthusiasts, indeed experts, in the room. Mm. But just in case there aren't any, <laughs> just explain to us all, what does a cricket selector actually do? And why did you do it differently? How did you do it differently? It's a good question. A fair few players and coaches would ask the same thing. We know that a selector is, um, by definition, unpopular. Firstly, because he makes tough decisions. And secondly, because he doesn't do anything physical. So one of the, the divides in professional sport is between people who get sweaty and work hard and, and actually physically exert themselves, and then the lazy suits, like a selector, 
who strut around and you know look all too cool and you know like they're not really trying hard. So it's a very difficult role. Um, I guess one way of thinking about it is that you're kind of half a football manager because you don't do the execution on the game day. You don't. You're not there in the cauldron, seeing people at the moment when they're most vulnerable and engaged and performing. You're just a step removed from that. You're beyond the boundaries edge. Um, but of course you are very much, your job is to make sure that the right people are on the field, the right people are in the squad, and the right, peop the right people are coming into contention as well. So it's a very strange mixture of being very, very close. You have a crucial lever, which is talent ID, selection, you know, who, but also you have to be at ease with the fact that once you've made your decisions, you can't influence them. So to that degree, <laughs> the analogy that I got interested in as I was writing the book actually w was with investment, where you'd be worried about any investor who said, uh, uh, you know, I know this is gonna work because I pressed the button in the most convincing way and I just 100% knew when I decided to make that take that position that it couldn't go wrong. You'd be like, ah, how can I back out of dealing with this person? In the same way, a selector who's always certain who believes in his own uh, confidence or who becomes, if you like, uh, who becomes mistakenly attached to his own ideas is already vulnerable and probably wrong. So you have to have the ability to live with skepticism, to embrace the tension of not always knowing the whole information, uh, there's a time frame which isn't always ideal, and you don't always know how things are gonna work out. All you can do really is have your worldview, your sensibility, your ideas, and your good process. And then of course there's a playing out of chances um, and you hope you can push the odds in your favor. So it's a very strange job. I was thinking in your very kind introduction, Andy, that it's probably all downside. I shouldn't really speak at all after <laughs> that introduction. Um, but it's a, it was a funny thing to come back into because I've been out of professional sport for a while. Um, because there's no role exactly like being a selector in another. I suppose in, in, in American sport, the, the GM figure, the general manager, or the person who's responsible for who's on the, the roster or the list is quite close. But in cricket, in, in sort of UK sport, it's, it's its own tradition, a bit you know, not like football or rugby where that coach is, is the key figure. And on the key point there, I mean, um, so after, after a game, yeah. did you go back and say, because um, let's say you've lost, yeah. didn't lose all that often as it turned out, but for those you did, did you go back and think, how much of that was down to me, Yes. the selection, and yes. how much of that was just the roll of the dice, the yeah. fact that player X, player Y, player Z had a bad day? Yeah. How much was me, how much was them? Yeah. I think that's the central question, always. I mean, sports are, is a very strange thing because it yields an answer, a result. And of course, once we have a result, that result feels just. That's the pretense that we agree to go on with, that the right team won. But of course, sport to some degree, you know, forces chance and skill into sort of a kind of manifestness, which is a line from a very good book by Stephen Connor called A Philosophy of Sport. And disentangling the skill and the luck is very, very hard. Um, my last book, so this book was called Making Decisions, the one 10 years ago was called Luck. Um, there they are, looking at the same thing, if you like, from two different perspectives. I think 
you want to start, particularly with a, with a self-critical lens, you want to start by thinking, what could we do better? And you don't want to rush to the conclusion that it was just the way it was and circumstance conspired against this or the bounce of the ball wasn't favourable. That's almost a last resort. And yet it's also true that on any given day, there is always the interplay and the interaction of two teams and also luck and also what the opposition does. Now, um, I think you're actually at a disadvantage if you deny that to yourself. If you think that everything is always directly caused by the decision, you're probably likely to lurch one way and then the other. Uh, I had very, very good teammates, James Taylor, who was my uh, co-selector, and Mo Bobat, who created the scouting system that was a huge benefit to us as selectors. And I would always start every post-match discussion with that group by saying, what, do, what, could, what have we learned? What could we do differently and better? And of course, it's, you know, that's where you want to start. And occasionally, you know, James and Mo were very good by saying, you can't always explain every defeat by the lens of selection. Sometimes we just lost. We didn't bat as well as them. We didn't bowl as well as them. It wasn't a selection issue this time. But I thought that if we're responsible for that little area, let's start there, even if we, we don't, if you like, get to a, to a thing we would necessarily change for the next game. So again, building on that a bit, Ed. So, um I mean, the subtitle of your book is putting the human back, um, not the machine. Um, and in your book, you, you mean machine in two senses, actually. Mm. Um, one is the use of algos and AI and data to inform or shape decisions. Mm. But the second sense is the sort of institutional machine, mm. the organizational machine. Mm. You know, places like this are institutions. Mm. My former mm. place was an institution. You know, um, how do you, in the face of those two constraints, not one, mm. tell me a bit more about the human-centric approach that you... Well, and again, that's, that's absolutely the heart of the book, those, those two f forms of machines. So first of all, you know, a tiny bit of autobiography. M you know, my dad, who was a great teacher, is still with us, he's a novelist, playwright, very creative person. Um, and my mum's an art teacher. And, you know, what, so that's the background. But when I became, you know, at a selection for England, I was very interested then in the data revolution inside sport, which obviously began really in earnest with the Moneyball revolution, popularised by Michael Lewis's excellent book, Moneyball. And then there are lots of other strands to it as well. And I'd been involved in that because I was very close to England's star data analyst, Nathan Lehman, who's a very good thinker. And I was really interested in how we could, you know, find an edge through... Yeah, effectively smart data and let's be honest algorithms where we, we, we had weighted averages where we would put kind of the results you see in the newspaper through a slightly different process and kind of slightly different ways of weighting players and assessing them so I was very interested in all that now the optimist in me whether you want to call it the scientist or the optimist or the rationalist thought we could get a bit closer maybe quite close to something a bit like optimizing selection now, when I wrote the book, so that's now four years after starting as selector, I realized partly from thinking about AI, um, and we had a big project with Microsoft when I was at England, and we were looking at how we could use AI you know, to think about selection, and also just partly make, trying to make sense. You know, one of the things about being a writer is it normally takes a very long time to figure out what you were doing. So you know, several years after starting the project, I was trying to think, what are the themes, what, what is the what was I really trying to do? 
of course you realize that the value of the human being is in the non-machine thinking. You know, we've got, we're going to have AI tools that can solve the problem that we can completely describe. If we can completely capture a problem, we're going to be able to solve it quite yep. quickly through non-human means. So therefore, it's when you can't perfectly describe the problem, when you don't have all the information, that's when the human being's ability to form analogies, to be creative, to see something that they can't even necessarily completely describe, which is a, I think is your actual line makes it into the book, Andy, which you, you introduced to me when you spoke at my institute, which was intuition has been defined as when we don't see our own working and we can't give our own working, which I thought was a very helpful framework. So I was like, the fact that I can't completely capture how I arrived at a position means I'm probably adding some value. Yeah. If I could completely capture it and write it down, someone or probably more likely something would be able to do it better than I can. So that was the journey I went on. So the reason I gave the autobiography at the beginning is that I came to realize how much I had inherited from my parents and their way of viewing the world, even though I'd a little bit rebelled against it and had a more sort of rational framework. But deep down, and this is where I'm actually very sympathetic to people who criticize me, because the fact that we can have this conversation and we can be in this room among very rational people and we can provide words for things is to some extent misleading because I'm actually extremely intuitive. So I have an, a vocabulary which can be not really accurate at describing who I am, which is actually often I'm very led by what I feel. Mm -hmm. and the words and the frameworks come later. Um, now, that's fine if you want to be a writer, but if you're a selector, that's probably not what a player <laughs> wants to hear. It's like, actually, I, I, you, know, so you don't want to say, I just didn't really fancy you for that game. That's not a very, <laughs> not a very complete or satisfying answer, you know, but it might be true. Um, and you know, there's a very interesting book about American football called Gridiron Genius, in which the author Michael Lombardi tries to describe what makes the three geniuses under review in that book, Al Davis, uh, Walsh, uh, the San Francisco 49ers, and then Bill Belichick more recently with the New England Patriots. And he brilliantly captures that even though they were very comfortable with an intellectual and academic uh, terminology, they were actually extremely intuitive and that most of the insights they had were actually drawing on a complexity of personal experience that was extremely hard to completely capture. So that's one element of the machine. The other element of the machine is bureau bureaucratic, and we've touched on this you know, when we sat in, in your you know, office in the bank, when you, in your previous role, and now here, another great room, another great institution central to intellectual life in this country. The difficulty is that Often what gives people an edge and what gives people value within a big institution, a great institution, is the fact that they think in their own way. Yeah. And you know, if we're all thinking alike, none of us is thinking. Um, yeah. And yet, of course, when people get a role, the first thing they then experience is being thrown into the middle of that bureaucracy. And they have to navigate that bureaucracy and they have to understand the tastes and temperament of the machine itself. Now, in that process, do they lose what makes them good? Do they lose the value? You know, before I wrote the book, I went back to my notebooks 
And the most self-critical thing I felt when I was rereading my notebooks over three years was they became more processy and more bureaucratic over the three years. <laughs> and they started off with, we're going to do this. It was teams, answers, players, solutions. And it ended up being, you know, remember to do this, remember to tell <laughs> that person, don't leave him out of the loop, call him first. You know, again, I'm slightly exaggerating to make the point. So to some degree, even me, who's probably perceived as being... <laughs> Um, if I could think of a nice word for, for selfish or, or for, you know, if you like playing my own game, I would think of it, but one didn't come, so I'll just leave it at that. Someone who, who was very independent-minded and probably didn't mind being unpopular. Um, and yet even I felt myself mm -hmm. going under a little bit. So one of the things when we come back to decisions, and then we'll draw it back to the main theme of, of our chat, the most important thing about decisions, before we come to process, before we come with to data, before we come to the system or, or how you're going to draw and reconcile different forms of information, how do you arrive at the decision? If you think of a, of a cricketing analogy, um, the most important thing about a cricket shot or a tennis shot is what happens in the run-up to that shot. You know, my son's a goalkeeper and he'll tell you that the way you stand, your degree of readiness, will inform how well you save the goal. In the same way, you know, I remember being at a Melbourne uh, Australian Open and about 10 or 15 years ago, and I spent the whole time watching Djokovic and Murray waiting to receive serve. Hmm. It was a model in how to be ready. It was probably the most interesting thing I've ever done in a sports stadium. And in the same way with decisions, if you arrive frazzled, if you arrive tired, if you arrive, if you arrive snowed under, if you arrive feeling that everything's on top of you and you've got no space to think, you're not going to make very good decisions. Now, how you fit that need for freshness, for individuality, for intuition into roles that demand a degree of compliance a base level of communicativeness with everyone, um, that's very, very hard. Um, you know, you will have seen it with, with politicians and central bankers, and you'll have seen them sometimes fail, where they're, they're just, all they're doing really is ticking the boxes, and nothing new is going into the petrol tank. So that was the other thing that I learned when I was writing the book, which is that, A, you've got to stay close to the bits that aren't machine-like, they're the parts of our intelligence that have the most use. And secondly, you've got to stay thinking in an unbureaucratic way, even when you're within a bureaucracy, both of which are easy to say, but <laughs> hard okay. to do. And on that, so I think that's a fascinating point. I mean, I want to reflect back on the many mistakes I've made, Ed, but the real whoppers have been ones where I've got against my intuition. Absolutely. Right? Afterwards, I thought, that felt wrong. Absolutely. This, this familiar? Absolutely. Now, here's the interesting thing. I was asked a very good question uh, at a literary festival. And it was at the end, you know, the last question. And it was, OK, so sometimes your book draws on some of the insights of behavioral economics and biases. And yet other times you talk a lot about intuition. So <laughs> when it goes wrong, it's a bias, and when it goes right, it's intuition. Yeah. And that's a fair, that's yeah, a yeah. fair criticism. Yeah. It's basically, there's no methodology there. It's just yeah. a, you know, a, afterwards we, we attach terms that suit us. I think that the difficulty is that 
anyone who's made decisions, you know, we flatter ourselves by saying important decisions. Your decisions were important as chief economist of the Bank of England. My decisions were important for you know, England cricket fans, but no, it's not life and death. But clearly, I think people who are good decision makers in sport, they all concede a role for intuition. And they would all, I think, or nearly all would agree with you that when they regret it, it's when they had a nagging doubt. And for whatever reason, whether they felt politically weak, mm-hmm. whether they felt that they were outnumbered, whether they just were having a, you know, they were distracted that day, any number of things, they went against their intuition. They are absolutely the times you regret it. Because, let's put that differently, because when you fail on your terms, you don't think you failed. Yeah. You think you've been yourself. Yeah. And actually, that is what the great players do. The, you know, the, 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 what sets them apart, and whether that goes back to players of my era like Kevin Peterson or the best players of today like Ben Stokes and Joss Butler, they will say, I am not going to let the game push me into a decision out on the field which is not the decision I want to take. I'm going to bring that forward and make it on my terms. And you see that in limited overs cricket all the time when people take a risk earlier in the over and they say, I'm not going to wait till I'm feeling stressed about being behind behind the way. I'm going to bring forward that moment so I'm going to own the risk and it's my decision. In actual fact, there are probably two types of decision maker. The ones who want to make decisions on their terms based on their ideas and they'll take the risk and the consequence and those who don't. And really, after that point, it's just temperament and taste and whatever. And it's very interesting when you watch people do a role you've done. They may do it completely differently. They may have a completely different process. They may have a completely different worldview. But if it's genuinely their show and they believe in it and they will back themselves, you kind of feel an affinity. And when you see people make decisions in in a role you know intimately, and you think they're doing it because they, they want to appease that faction or they don't want to upset that person or they want to cover themselves in that way, you sort of lose interest and you tune out because you know it's not, there's no creative vision being developed. And to that degree, I think decision-making, you know, within an institution, within a team, whether that's a business or a, or a school or a, a theatre company or, or a cricket governing body, they're all creative exercises. And nearly always, I think when there's a successful one, someone is driving a creative vision. I would go further and say normally I believe it is fundamentally one person with other people making a great contribution along the way. I want to come on to creativity and explore that with you because that's a rich avenue. Um, Before that though, um, when you talk about leadership in the book, you talk about striking this balance between the boldness, and you're speaking about the, those bold leaders who just back themselves. This is my intuition, I'm going with it, I'm mm. controlling. But the other side of this you talk about is, is humility, mm. which is, you know, among other things, knowing when you don't know. Mm. How do you get at that, that balance between, you know, when to strike out and say, I'm being my own person, I'm going with my gut mm. on this mm. one. And when you say, you know what? Now's the time for me to listen rather than to speak, sure. to learn rather than to act. Sure. How do I think about those two things? Again, that, you know, if, if you see, you're always on that spectrum, aren't you, in that there are risks on both sides. Overconfidence is always a risk, and then not doing what you believe in is always a risk. And you're probably a bit like you know, being a parent or 
any aspect of life, you're always going to err on one side or the other at any given moment, but you hope that the, the swings get smaller as you get a bit older and you're not making such lurching mistakes. You're just kind of making small mistakes all the time rather than huge ones. Uh, a couple of things. Just come back to, to the collegiate or the, if you like, the humility side of it. I felt the best meetings that led to decisions, so I, I don't like meetings as a general rule, but if we're going to have meetings, let's try and have good ones, which means you know people actually say things other people don't know, and there's genuine insight at the end of it. It's when people around the table all had respect for each other's domain expertise. So if I think of the best meetings, someone like we'd have you know, someone who was uh, acting director of cricket or managing director of cricket when I was selected was Andy Flower, who'd been a great, great coach, you know, taken England to number one in test cricket, probably the only coach who'd done that. We'd have Nathan Lehman, who was a brilliant data analyst. James Taylor, who had a great instinct for the modern game, was just 30 years old, just walked out of professional cricket. Mm -hmm. Mo Bobat, who was a scouting guru. And then a coach and a captain who had the feel of the dressing room. They could actually sense that day, that week, they could sometimes say, look, you know, Ed, we know what you're trying to get to, but this is not the moment. And that would be very, very valuable. Now, all of those people had areas where I felt they knew more than me. Mo knew more about scouting than I did. Nathan knew more about the data than I did. Andy knew more about the business of, of champion teams building over a long period of time. Um, the coach and the captain had that, that, that feel of, of the day-to-day. -day. So that's when I think you're sucking all that up. Mm -hmm. And you've got to know when that ranks your you know, intuition. I think the other thing is that you know, you talk about the ability to, to know when you don't know. I mean, there's a difference between confidence that you've made the decision, which is the best you can do, given the evidence, given the process, given the time constraints, and being wrong and thinking it's definitely going to work. And I was always amazed when I was a player that people would talk themselves into this state of confidence after the decision's been made. And you'd be like, guys, the decision's been made. We don't really know after we leave the meeting until the end of the game. <laughs> There's not much we can say that's going to make any difference. Let's just like, go and play darts or pool or something useful instead, <laughs> rather than just saying 100% right decision. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. So I think, and actually that was where you know, I was very lucky to have a friendship with Howard Marks. Um, Oak Tree Capital, great investor, very experienced American thinker about investment. And you know, occasionally I'd meet up and have breakfast with Howard when I was selected for England. And one of the things I found so fascinating was this is a guy taking big positions, but he would be able to live with intellectual tension within those big decisions. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, oh, you know, the team of analysts gave me this information, therefore I was 100% certain to take this. It was like, it's difficult. And if you're not living in the difficult bits, you're probably not adding much value. And actually, that's the great line that uh, Barack Obama said to Michael Lewis, didn't he? Which is that nothing easy ever reaches my desk because someone would have solved it before right. Right. if it was easy. And to some degree, nice. I, I think that's true, that if you're in an interesting role, um, you want to just accelerate through to the difficult stuff um, because really the easy bits should have been, should have been dealt with before. Can I ask about, um, Ed, you, you put a huge premium, rightly, on, on, on creativity, on intuition, mm. on innovation, on mm. people acting entrepreneurially, mm. even when, actually, especially when they're in big organizations. Yeah. Um, that's instinctive to some. 
the Smiths and the Stokes of this world, but not to others. So my question is, how can we nurture a greater sense of those things in a wider range of people for whom it, it perhaps isn't their preferred habitat? I mentioned these, you know, we are wading through layers of uncertainty right now. We need people to lean into that uncertainty mm -hmm. rather than lean away from that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Not be cowed and petrified in both senses of the word by mm -hmm. it, but instead to think how creatively can we find a way through? How do we nurture that, that instinct in more people Ed, to help us find a way through? Small question. It, it, it is the, the question, isn't it? And, and I think I can only answer, you would know more about a macro answer to that than I would ever know. And the only useful way I think I can maybe take a tiny step towards answering that is through experience. And I think in our small teams, I think it would be quite hard for someone to, to sort of say, let's all do that to a thousand people in a room yep. as a kind of yep. CEO or whatever. I think in our small teams, real leadership is about encouraging people to take risks without fear of consequence yeah. if they genuinely believed it was the right thing to do. Now, that's actually a strong part of army training at Sandhurst, which is that if you believe it was the intention of your commanding officer, you have the authority to exercise that position. You don't have to ask for permission all the time. Yeah if you believe it was his intention. Yeah. Now that's a very good model because it means you're not constantly going up and down the chain saying, you know, can I please you know, sharpen my pencil or whatever would be the banal thing. I mean, if you think about how much time is wasted by people checking. You know, now, occasionally, of course, is if, it's a, if it's a really big thing, checking and making sure that everything's aligned and you know, covered is maybe necessary. But the vast majority of the time, actually, if you're working with or for someone and you know what they believe in and you're, if you like, got some autonomy over the decision, you should just do what you believe in. Yeah. And so I think it's through those small steps that, that the, the institution as a whole or, or the collective gets better at taking those risks under uncertainty. I think where, where we tried to get to in, in our very little group, you know, five or six or seven people with some people in and out who wore other hats as well. We call it talent ID and selection, but you know, who's on the field basically, that, that group. The group who spends their life while asking that question. I think you try to get to a stage where no one's ever afraid of saying anything at all. Nothing is deemed too obvious to comment on. Nothing is deemed too crazy to have a stab at. Yeah. And you can never remember at the end who came up with the idea in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as Bruce Springsteen said, one plus one equals three. And that was his introduction to Clarence Clements, you know, in the E Street Band, which is that some people have the ability, and this is one of the themes of the book, is interrelation and how a group adds up to more than some of the parts. Some people have the ability to make a team, whether it's a team of decision makers, a team on the field, whatever type of team it is, add up to more than some of the parts. Now, you want to get those guys on board and you want to empower them and you want to make them as central as you can. Um, and actually, that was one thing that I think one of the biggest differences, and this is a slightly different point to the, to the one you're making or the question you asked about embedding creativity and risk and innovation, is I think if you'd asked 
you know, I'm not at all critical of previous selectors. They did a very good job. But I think they would, most people who'd held my job before me would say that they picked England players. I thought of it more as being, I picked England squads and tried to evolve England teams. I thought in teams. Again, which is maybe surprising because I don't think I was perceived as being, as a player, the most teamy person. I wasn't the last person in the bar. I was very contained. A lot of people thought I was quite aloof. That was a criticism lots of people, you know, said about me. But as a selector, the way I viewed the game was it's 11 people. And we've got to find a way to have an 11 that beats the other 11. And we will set it up any way we want, however crazy it looks, however unconventional it looks, if it's our best chance of beating the other 11. Um, and that's where you get away from that, but X is better than Y conversation. What that misses is context. In what context? Mm -hmm. In this team, it may be that X has got a better average than Y, but in this team, what we need is X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And that's what yeah. we're going to go with. Um, so I think, you know, it, returning to the, the very, very big picture that, that you framed there, I think, can we nudge, can we help our close colleagues, those are a little bit like, you know, our friends and our family members, can we just reinforce that preparedness to do what we believe in and always just push people a little bit away from doing things where they feel they're not going to get blamed? Because if you're doing things you're not going to get blamed, you're probably not doing anything at all. And actually, that was actually the biggest lesson I learned about external judgments. And it took me a long time to realize this. I, I've never been particularly bothered about criticism, but actually I realized that if I wasn't being criticized, I wasn't doing my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you take an average of received wisdom on cricket, and you took a perfect average, and that was the team, you have a sinecure, you don't have a job. What are you doing? Someone could capture that average very easily. They could do a poll. They could go and ask all the people that know a bit about cricket, ask all the commentators, and that's the 11. It's only when you can find value that others miss. That's the only way you can create, uh, where you, ha you have a real job. If you aren't finding value that otherwise would have been missed, you know, you're really just stealing, actually, because you're putting in for a salary every month that you're, that you're not doing anything. That's a great answer. Everyone hold the thought. If you're not being criticised, you're not doing your job, right? That will sustain you through the day. Um, I'm going to go to the... Um, Certainly true in my family. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the floor and, and capture some questions here and then uh, ping them in online and we'll get through as many of those as possible. We might take them in clumps, Ed, if that's okay. I feel we scarcely scratched the surface, Andy. I feel this needs to be you know, much more scratching to come. I'm going to start at the back there and then I'll work my way forward just, just here. Hi, Melanie Flory from the Royal College of Art. I'm a neuroscientist. Um, I love this thing about intuition, and we know that intuition is made up of various bits of cognition and experience that we don't have access to. Yeah. What I'd love for you to talk into a little bit more into the space of, when you follow your intuition, especially in big leadership positions where you, that impact on the lived experience and probably the life course of an individual is at hand, Talk a little bit from your experience about that intuition can be both. You can be at peace with yourself and you can be terribly uncomfortable cognitively and emotionally and behaviorally. Talk a little bit into that because it's quite a lonely place to be when you're making decisions um, on, on a, that will affect other people's lives. Yeah. 
Wonderful. We'll collect one or two more, if that's sure, okay. Sure. That's an amazing question to start. Uh, we'll start here and then go down the front. Uh, Ed, you, ma you made the point about the multiplier effect of creating teams where the sum is greater than the parts. What would your advice be when you have a situation where the opposite is true? <laughs> Um, I, 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 I think there's you know, you know one good example of, you know, if you take the sporting uh, context at Manchester United where a brilliant player sure. appears, appears or appeared to sure, sure. mean that his, his colleagues played worse. In a team, in an organisation, what would your advice be on how you deal with that? Brilliant. Fantastic question. We'll, we'll, we'll come down here and then we'll... Uh, <laughs> we'll ask Ed to field those. Brilliant. Yeah, Ed, you, you talked about picking a squad, not a group of individual players. And I'm just thinking back to the 90s when England weren't very good at cricket and when it felt like there was a lot of picking individual players um, and people felt you know, very let down as a result, not being given a decent run. Now we seem 30 years on to have shifted to a period where there's much more sort of compassionate, give the guy a long run, uh, make people feel good about themselves. Is that also a trend across leadership in wider society, at least in uh, you know, non-Putin countries? Yeah. Uh, and if so, is that a good thing or is this just a flavor in sport going to and fro? Ed, good luck. Good luck, yeah. <laughs> First one, uh, you know, intuition and it's interaction to relationship with, with people's lives and how do you live with that. Um, great mentor of mine, John Inverarity, who was to some degree the Australian Mike Brearley, um, for those of you who, who are cricket fans. He was a great captain of Western Australia, played for Australia, although he didn't captain Australia. I'm sure he would have been a great captain of Australia if he had. And he used to say to me, he was also head of selection for Australia for a while, he would say to me, if Everyone thinks that if you're dropping someone, it's tough on them. But if someone else is more deserving, do you have the right to deprive that person of opportunity? Good point. And the example he would use was Gilchrist, the great Australian wicketkeeper, who actually spent a long time trying to break into the team. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, he was probably the greatest player in his position of all time. So your responsibility and this actually is very close to the heart of the matter. Your responsibility is to serve the team, uh, not the individual. And you have to do whatever you believe, collectively as a group of decision makers, serves the team best. And the example that was you know, the toughest one was the World Cup selection of 2019, when we had the final selection meeting and 17 went into 15. And there you are at Lords, and you know, the coaches, the, the captain, the selectors, the data analyst, the head of scouting, and they leave one by one <laughs> at the end of the meeting, the meeting's over. And then there's three, and then there's two, and James Taylor was the last to leave. And he knows he's leaving me with 17 phone calls, two bad ones, or two difficult ones. And you know, one was to David Willey, who played a big part in, in England's success as a team and as a great team man and a very popular person and James Taylor who was my co-selector just said the truth honest direct that's what he would want um, so you try um, you know David was very very hurt by by missing out on what was an incredible experience for the 
team that went on to win the World Cup. But ultimately, that didn't weigh heavily with me because I believe we picked the best squad for that challenge. Um, and that goes with the territory. The second question, well, there should really, uh, that demands a chapter. The chapter about the opposite, so what if there's someone who decreases the collective output despite being a very good player? Well, the chapter in the book that explores the positive example of that is called Swarm Harmonizer, which looks at, and the example I use is Sam Curran, whose character, skill, and variety is highly correlated with England doing better than they otherwise would do. Um, now, some people say it's not a massive sample size, it's a significant sample size, and he's just been, you know, man of the series in a World Cup win in the T20s. So, you know, he's a remarkable competitor and performer. But the opposite does also apply. There are clearly times when someone is a very, very good player, but the, the uh, performance of the group goes down. Now, you were referring to Cristiano Ronaldo. Interestingly, there's a group of data analysts in football that predicted it 100%. So if you actually, so it's not an emotional position they were taking. They were saying if you actually followed his form in the Italian league, what will happen is the team will play worse because he won't do this, he won't do that. The team won't press very well. He'll score the odd good goal because he's a very good player, but overall the Manchester United will get worse. And actually, uh, you know, Rebecca, my wife's here, she'll <laughs> remember the conversation. I said it was a terrible signing for United and they'll play worse as a result of signing him. Doesn't mean he wasn't a great player at his best that could have probably added value to, it, to almost every team, but at that particular time it was a bad idea. And the third question was... Looking back to the 90s. Uh, yes, individuals. Okay, well let me answer that in a, bri a very brisk, brisk way. There's a spectrum, isn't there, between what we could caricature as a revolving door selection where no one gets enough time, the sample size is always too small, small no one feels at home, they're constantly introducing themselves to people that are then playing alongside, and you don't know anything at the end because you've changed your mind so many times. Nightmare. There's also, at the other end of the spectrum, going back to your point, you can err in different ways. If you never change the team, then how do you know you're not missing out on brilliant players who are just outside the 11? And also, what happens if someone gets injured? So my view was you needed depth. And everyone says, yeah, we want depth. And they say, okay, do you know what that means? It means changing the team. Because you can't have depth where you've got 11 people getting all the opportunity and four people getting no opportunity. You've got to get them in. So to me, good selection was arriving at a big challenge with some people having <laughs> experience in the event of your key guys going down, because they will in the but case of... do you of think it's a victory of a, a shift in leadership? Maybe, style? maybe. Uh, I, my view was... You should always be, in a, and this is where players being dropped, if you like, rather than just rotation. My view was you should always try and make the selection before it's obvious. And if the bloke in the pub can see that it's time for them to get dropped, you know, really, you're a little bit late there, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And uh, so I don't actually agree with the idea that you should always give a player one too many games. I actually think you should give the player just the right amount of games that gives the team the best chance of winning. And particular questions online. First one, well, Sent in from Staplehurst Cricket and Tennis Club, actually, interestingly. Um, it said, Ronald Reagan said, great leaders inspire others to make decisions. How important is delegated decision-making? So that's one, Ed. Hold that thought. Second one, which I'm actually intrigued by from Lindsay, is what role do you think the body has in making decisions? The intelligence that's rooted 
in noticing and respecting physical sensations and the movements the body makes. George Soros is back. Yeah. Um, is the example, which is that, you know, it, it, that's his intuitive tell is that something, you know, isn't right and he's, it manifests itself as, as back pain. Yeah. I, I certainly think that, and actually we were talking about this in the green room before, one of the things we lost in COVID was the room. And it's great to see, you yeah. know, all yeah. you here today and it's a completely different quality of experience for me to be together in, in, in sharing this experience in a room, in a live experience. Now, of course, if you're never doing that, you never get to sense whether another decision maker is actually you know, really looking uncomfortable because it might be he's, he's not on the Zoom at that moment or you're looking at someone else in the center of the screen. It's completely different. So I think that not only recognizing your own physical tells, but also other people as well. Um, yeah, I remember one selection meeting I had an idea very early on, and I thought there'd been a bereavement suddenly. As I was like, we're definitely not going to do that. Everyone looks so sad, um, and they just had a traumatic experience with this particular, you know, player. Or whatever. They didn't want to go there, and I was like, we're taking that off the table straight away because you're not making arguments. You're just looking like we're not doing it. So I think that's a big part of it. And actually, um, this is not about making decisions, but I think we all, as a society, have to remember the centrality of movement and our bodies within a good life. And if you're spending your whole life on your smartphone or on a Zoom call, I reckon you're going to make very bad decisions for a whole range of different <laughs> reasons, one of which is you know, you're not fully alive. Um, so actually, I think it's not quite the question that was asked, but I think the ability to be together physically and also to, to attend to your own wider needs as a human being is very central. There was a first question. Delegated decision-making, the importance yeah, of that. Uh, well, I think it's very, a very important thing. Um, if you're making all the decisions, you're not, you're not creating space for the most important decisions. And so in a way, any decision that can be made by someone else without you feeling that it lacks you should be. Um, and your insights as a CEO... I think it's certainly true that the higher up you go in management, for want of a better word, the fewer decisions you have to make, mm. but the more important those decisions are. And therefore, if you're, and you see this a lot, and I, I sometimes call it the, the inverse sprezzatura, where everyone wants to show how hard they're working and how busy they are, that they actually self-frazzle. And then they wonder why they when the big decision comes around, they're not in good shape to give it everything they've got. So I think if you are capable of delegating decisions that will create space, ultimately space, attention and space is, without that, I think it's very, very hard to be creative. And you know, again, it's been put better by other people, but you know, Warren Buffett said that the difference between successful people and very successful people is very successful people say no to almost everything. Right. And I think that's true for very creative people too. There's a reason why you know, great writers and singers, musicians, don't spend their whole time replying to text messages. That's not wrong. At the, we'll go to the, the back there, gentlemen, it's been very... Hi, yeah, um, really interesting. Um, there is a challenge, as a preface, there is a challenge that 
business schools and executives have spent too much time looking at elite sport instead of their customers. And so that's just a challenge to preface what, but I am interested in the idea of stress. I just wondered how you view the role of stress, anxiety and pressure in um, elite performance. Very good question. I'm going to take one from this side of the room and we'll go uh, here in the interest of balance. Thanks, Keely. Hi, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Andy. Um, I'm really interested in how to make better decisions because I run a monthly meetup uh, where people get together to look at how they can maximize their positive impact that they have on the world. And that kind of those kinds of topics are very nuanced and complex and they're evolving and they are very different for, very, uh, for different people. The three pillars that I've looked at creating are uh, maximum diversity, psychological safety, and also answering a better quality of question in the first place. And I wondered what your thoughts were on the necessary conditions to help make better decisions in that environment. Ed. Brilliant questions. Um, let's start with that. I think, and I feel most competent to talk about the third of those conditions, which is better questions. So, which also leads to the beginning of this conversation and about the machine and about data and algorithms. I was always very careful in press conferences never to say the data says. Data doesn't say anything. You have to ask. Okay. And all the leaps forward in professional sport that have been connected to smarter or better use of data have begun with a good question. Without the good question, you're not going to get anywhere. In the case of Moneyball, it was maybe batting averages don't really capture batting contribution. And we felt the same way in cricket. We felt that headline averages didn't really capture contribution. So if we can find a better way to capture contribution, will assess way value players in a superior way and gain an edge. So I think the ability to refine, improve the nature of the question is very central to the, to the task. Um, and you, the, the other point you mentioned which is psychological safety, which I think connects with one of the points I made earlier on, that in that, and I, can you move a meeting towards a conversation? Because you know, what's more frustrating, very few things are more frustrating than having a meeting and then everyone rushes to have a conversation afterwards. <laughs> I was like, well, let's have the conversation <laughs> in the meeting. Why do we have to end the meeting and then start? That's actually <laughs> the first thing I noticed were, right when I began is that people, you know, careful what I say, I was in a meeting <laughs> where the meeting wasn't very good and the conversation after the meeting was really good. And I was like, guys, we need to flip this over and we've got a good system here. Let's get to the stuff. And that's where maybe... I think you want to use all your tricks of making people feel as informal as possible. And I cite in the, in the book, uh, you know, I work with a, a great editor in a newspaper, and he would just sort of appear and ambush you and say, interesting or not interesting about something massive. And you'd, you'd, before you'd had a chance to think, you'd blurt out what you felt. And of course, that's much more value than you know, straightening your back and saying, well, in 1812, you know, <laughs> whatever, some historian's answer that you would have you know, prepared before leader conference. Um, so I think that's very important. Business schools and t so the sport business analogy, you're, you're raising the question, is it overplayed? Sometimes yes. So I think if you're interested in analogy, as I am, you have to be alert to when the analogy doesn't hold. Yeah. 
And I think that's a very fair question. And sometimes sport is, you know, people say, well, if you know, that's what they're doing, we can do exactly the same thing in our world. Well, probably not, because they're different types of people, it's a different type of challenge, uh, different temperaments are involved. And it's, of course, it's a, usually a much more bounded exercise. You know, sport is actually relatively straightforward in terms of we know what a goal looks like, but often in life we don't. So there's a, a radical uncertainty about the real world, which isn't always present in, in the very bounded world of professional sport. However, I do think that thinking about the team aspect and the frameworks we've discussed today and I write about in the book does have some transferable value, only, you know, only when it's exercised with judgment and caution. But I think lots of people I've spoken to in different worlds, whether they were in academics or in business or in the arts, as well as in sport, I think there is a, a common language about how some people have the ability to put together groups or teams which have a life and a temperament and a, and a, a mood of their own which is perhaps better than otherwise would have been the case. So I think that is a, a real phenomenon. And sometimes sport can give us an insight there. It's also true that it's not the case that every winning team has better team spirit. It's not the you know, famous quote, you know, an illusion glimpsed in victory. There's something in that, if you like, um, skeptical view. But I'm quite certain that decisions and group culture do interact. When culture is better, decisions are more likely to be good. They're not certainly going to be good. And when culture is worse, decisions are likely to be worse. Of course, occasionally you're going to get a de good decision in a bad culture too. There are so many good questions, both in the room and online. So let me ask you another online one. This one is going to uh, test your diplomacy skills, Ed. <laughs> um, what are Ed's thoughts on basball? Um, uh, is McCullum allowing the players to make their own intuitive decisions yeah. or is the overarching no fear philosophy endorsing abdication of responsibility? Well, I would tend to the former analysis there. I, I think, you know, Brendan, I've admired for a long time, um, a very shrewd appointment by Rob Key. Uh, and... I think he's doing a lot more than he lets on. Like a lot of the best leaders are very good at saying, I don't do anything. And of course with Brendan, there's also the, the sort of the mythology of the, the great times. And you know, all we do is you just have a cigar after a win and we just want to keep everyone relaxed and we have a glass of wine. Okay, that, that's all fair and it does happen, but he's also incredibly smart and he knows exactly what he's trying to do. He actually reminds me of, of the entrepreneur who doesn't like to say what he's doing, right. but afterwards, you, you see out. that he knows exactly what he was doing. So I think there's a real creative vision there on, on, uh, on Brendan's part. I think that what's interesting about what's happened in the last few months with England's test team is that generally, I've not seen many examples of, to borrow a phrase from politics, where back to basics has worked in sport. I've never seen it work, where we're just going to play a more conservative version of sport. We're going to just do the simple things well. We're not going to take any risks. I've never seen it work. Uh, I'm sure there have been examples of defensive-minded football teams, but even then there would have been some creative reimagining of a defensive team. I think of a great Mourinho team. It wasn't just a bit like all the other defensive teams. It was also his own interpretation of how you won without the ball. 
So basically, when Brendan and Ben Stokes and Rob Key came in and said, this is how we're going to play. We're going to play on the front foot, we're going to play to win, we're going to play with risk, and we're going to play with imagination. I was like, thank God. That was my, you know, my actual, sort of the voice in my head was this is going to be a lot of fun. They're not going to win every game. They are, um, they're going to be some bumps in the road. We know all that. But you're much more likely in sport if you c to win if you can get people focused on the good stuff that could happen rather than the bad stuff that might go wrong. Too right on that. Keels is saying, stop. I'm going to keep going, Keels. Two last questions. Um, uh, and one is from Robin online. And it's, the question is, how do you know when you've made a better decision? Is it about your feeling of the process having been better? Or does it need to be validated by the eventual outcome? Well, I don't think one outcome on its own is enough to validate a decision. So for example, if asked the question after a win, obviously the win validates your selection. I would always say no, <laughs> that's not the case, partly because I didn't want the inverse question, which is having made the decision the way you did and then lost, surely you now see that you made the wrong Obviously you need a, a bigger sample than one game. Clearly that there are times when a combination of being at ease with your own intuitive position, confidence that the process was then, I think where process is very good is process filters out obvious mistakes. That's what I came to see. So I don't want to be down on process because I know how much I benefited from, from a good process around me and from people who were very, you know, always another filter, another filter, another filter. Are there any obvious mistakes we're making? Is there anything that we should have done we haven't done? Those people are very important. They filter out obvious errors. Um, and those systems are very important. But I think it's probably when you feel that you've arrived at a better place and it's been checked rigorously through a good process. I think it's, but when those things are aligned, because obviously one without the other, it might just be, <laughs> you might be having an off day. Um, but I've also never seen process alone get very far. It needs an engine, you know. I want to end on this one, Ed. Um, so I think of you as a mountain climber, right? You've climbed a whole range of mountains, different sets of mountains, different ranges of mountains. So I want to know what the next mountain is. <laughs> the books, the most immediate mountain, that's been scaled, available outside afterwards. I'll just get to that in a second. What's the next one, Ed? Well, we were a family of mountain walkers, and my sister used to say, but I like the view from here. <laughs> so maybe she had a point. And maybe, you know, maybe... It's a flippant answer because I. It's true, isn't it, that we imagine there's a, a happy situation or environment when you're not being pushed or stressed, was the word earlier on, or challenged. But the reality is there probably isn't. And it's in the challenge is when you accidentally arrive at what retrospectively seems to be something approaching happiness or whatever you want to call it. So there always is another thing. The only thing I'd say, Andy, to that is that what Writing Luck, the, the last book before making decisions, I think what that tried to capture was that I'd 
changed my mindset or things that happened to me, whichever way. And I think the open-close axis had become more central to the way I viewed success rather than just the win-lose axis. I think the 20-year-old me was overly attached to the win-loss spectrum. And that was the way I viewed a lot of things. Not everything, but a lot of things. And of course, you always want to be the guy that wins. I think over time, I realized that there's also, a, if you can incorporate into that or a sense of not knowing, a sense of openness to serendipity, chance, and exposure to things that you, you can't yet completely formulate or imagine, you're more likely, I think, to make a contribution in a bigger and more interesting way. So in a sense, my answer is, if I could answer that, I'd probably be diminishing my, my prospects of it being the right thing. Um, going back to the theme of intuition and decisions, I think you kind of know when someone or something or you formulate a challenge which feels like the right thing, yeah. and you find you have energy. And you know, that was Larkin's comment about writing, wasn't it? That, that without energy, you're wasting your time. And I think when you feel you have that energy, when the force is with you, then you're somewhere close to being where you should be, and maybe the mountain's coming into view. Brilliant way to end a bit of Darth Vader there towards the end. Um, <laughs> uh, we should definitely wrap up, because uh, I'm in trouble for overrunning. Um, thank you, everyone online. Hugely, some brilliant questions coming in. There are some links uh, there uh, in the chat uh, online, both to RSA stuff uh, and links, more importantly, to Ed's um, fantastic uh, book, uh, which I've read twice, actually. Crikey. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Once in Galley Proof in the final form. Um, and Ed's given you a sneaky peek on little bits of it, but there's so much more in there. And on that, sale, the book's being sold outside. And if you're lucky, Eddie might even sign you a copy uh, on uh, you out. Thanks, everyone, for coming uh, along and joining us in what's been a fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, in the best sense, uh, of those words, going back to that quote at the very beginning. I hope you'll join us uh, again um, and enjoy Ed's book. Uh, and last but no means least, of course, please join me in thanking the fantastic Ed Smith. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.